0: The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the face of litigation in Ireland, quite dramatically, in fact, and has really accelerated technological change and forced the courts and lawyers to change the way they operate. And while this change was a necessary response to the pandemic, it has, in fact, set the stage for how things might play out on a more permanent basis and how our courts might operate into the future. I'm Sinead Riley and I'm the professional support lawyer in the litigation, dispute resolution and investigations team here at Arthur Cox. And to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the operation of the courts and on litigation in Ireland, I have brought together three of my colleagues who really have been at the front and center of this change in the last number of months. I'm joined, albeit remotely, by Richard Willis, a partner in our litigation, dispute resolution, and investigations team. Richard advises clients on investigations and commercial disputes, focusing on the financial, technology, entertainment, and sports sectors. By Gillian Conifrey, a senior associate also in our Litigation, Dispute Resolution and Investigations team. Gillian specialises in investigations and commercial disputes across a broad range of sectors. And finally, by Eileen Burns, our Chief Digital Officer and Head of our Legal, Tech and Innovation Services practice group. And Eileen has over three decades of experience in consulting services and the tech industry. So, thank you, Richard, Gillian, and Eileen, for joining me today. And I'm very much looking forward to our discussion. Before we talk about all the change that we have seen in the last number of months, Gillian, maybe you could take us back to a time pre COVID.
1: What did a typical day in the High Court look like? Well, I suppose, Sinead, the first question there is what is a typical day? Uh, If you were to take, for example, a Monday where the court lists were usually reserved for motions, um, such as, for example, motions for discovery, uh, you could have 50, you could have 100 motions in the list. Uh, And in those lists, individual motions didn't typically have their own time slot. So effectively, parties were required to wait their turn until their case was called. And this meant in practice that most, if all, participants in the uh, applications were present, physically present in the courtroom from the start of the list at 10.30 or 11 a.m. until their case was called. So I suppose the the consequence of that is that what we would typically have seen were very busy courtrooms packed with barristers, solicitors, court staff. Parties would often have a stenographer present to take a transcript of the proceedings. And then there may also have been court reporters, um, and then, of course, certain of the parties to the litigation themselves and other observers. So by all accounts, very busy courtrooms, effectively, with standing room only. And then I suppose, aside from the motion lists, there were, of course, trials running on an ongoing basis, many of which would have had multiple parties to the litigation. And, And this meant, really, that there could be a number of teams of lawyers present in the courtroom as well as the parties themselves. If it were a witness trial, you usually would also have had witnesses present in court, experts present, um, as well, of course, as the court staff, possibly a stenographer and potentially the media. And then I suppose outside of the courtrooms themselves, in the round hall and along the corridors of the Four Courts building, um, you would have seen gatherings of people who were perhaps waiting for the case to be called or conducting settlement discussions on what is traditionally known as the steps of the court. So it was really kind of in answer to your question, on any given day, the, the Four Courts building was really kind of a hive of activity, lots of people milling around, um, uh, and generally
0: just quite busy. So, so as you said, Gillian, a lot of activity, a lot of hustle and bustle, a lot of people coming and going and all of that. Presumably, that all came to an abrupt end with the government lockdown
1: in March. Essentially, yes, uh, it did come to an abrupt end. And for obvious reasons, the courts couldn't continue in the manner um, that, it, that it had been dealing up to that time. And there was a huge scaling back of court business. So looking back to early March, in order to prevent the spread of the virus, uh, the then president of the High Court directed that the court would sit only for limited urgent matters and these were mainly criminal matters such as habeas corpus applications extradition bail applications and then certain civil matters such as civil injunctions wardship uh, applications and urgent judicial reviews so i suppose save for those matters the court was effectively closed uh, and this was really unprecedented we saw cases that had been listed for hearing were adjourned generally with no reassigned date. Um parties were encouraged to try and agree matters on consent where possible. Um in cases where judgments were had were due to be delivered, those judgments were sent to them directly by email to avoid the necessity to go to court. Various different issues like that. So it really was a strange time for us as litigators. Uh, and I anticipate it was quite unsettling for parties to the litigation themselves who perhaps may not have been that familiar with the court process in any event, and then grappling with this additional layer of uncertainty um, within the court service itself.
0: So cases are generally adjourned and the physical court buildings are effectively closed, except for very urgent matters. But Richard, there was a lot of work going on in the background and a very concerted effort amongst the legal community. Judges, barristers, solicitors, courts service staff, to try and get things moving again. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, certainly, Sinead. I mean, as the COVID crisis began, we were we were aware of those initiatives, and what we wanted to do was make sure that there was good coordination around that stakeholder group. Our focus immediately turned to trying to get facilities in place to have remote hearings. Now, we've obviously got precedent for remote hearings, and um, you know, through witnesses coming in through video links in commercial court cases over the years, but that's, I suppose, a a practice which is the exception rather than the rule and was not widely used. But uh, as you said, there was intense engagement across all the stakeholder groups and uh, in an effort to assist the court service and the judiciary in uh, the initiative. And for our part, this involved assisting the court service and judiciary on a voluntary basis and since late March, Gillian, Eileen and myself have been involved in a number of initiatives on that basis including uh, preparing a detailed draft paper outlining the rationale for the introduction of remote hearings which was submitted to the court service and the judicial users group of the high court via the commercial litigation association of ireland of which were uh, members and founding members of that association Uh, we uh, liaised with the court of appeal and uh, judicial users group and provided user guides to the court for suggestions as to the efficient use of their existing technologies in terms of document management and document markup. We also drafted technology agnostic protocols and procedures for the conduct of remote hearings in the commercial court. Uh, We also spoke with close contacts in the legal community in the UK and in particular, a team that ran a remote hearing, including the hearing of witness evidence uh, over the course of a week in the English High Court. Uh, We also conducted a survey through our global network next Monday uh, of in excess of 60 members across that network in different jurisdictions to find out what they were seeing in the technology and practice trends uh, across the globe. And we fed that back into the the, the court service working group. Um, and uh, Eileen, Gillian and myself are members of the legal teams that piloted the first high court test hearings uh, held uh, within the PECSIP system by the commercial court on a remote basis on the 16th of April uh, before the head of the commercial list. And these were also observed by 12 other judges of the High Court. Um, And then more recently, for the past two or three months, Eileen and myself have also been part of the remote hearings working group of the Court Service, the Judiciary, the Commercial Litigation Association and the uh, Law Society. And this has included testing other technologies at further mock hearings in the commercial list in the past two weeks which have this time concentrated on the ability to hold witness actions. And and the work of this group, I believe, and I'm very hopeful and it's going to lead to an acceptance by the court service that another technology platform can be used for the purpose uh, of uh, witness actions. And hopefully that will be up and running come late September, early October. Also last week, the civil law and criminal law miscellaneous provisions bill of 2020 Was published and this is a really interesting piece of draft legislation. Um, The salient provisions of which include section 11 which allows the court to order that any civil proceedings before it may be conducted by remote hearing Um, with section 11.5 empowering the court to make provision in relation to the means by which remote hearings are to take place. Also interesting in the Um, draft legislation is section 20 which authorises rules of court to be made in order to make provision for the electronic filing of documents and indeed also for a statement of truth to be given to verify the information contained in those documents in place of an affidavit or statutory declaration. So all in all you know it's been a real privilege to have been involved in this really exciting work which you know we hope is changing the face of litigation in Ireland in a very positive way.
0: Yes, very, very exciting work indeed. And clearly there was a huge amount of work involved. Moving from a traditional courtroom setting to remote hearings is obviously a massive change, not only in terms of getting the technology up and running, but also, and I think more importantly, getting everyone on board and comfortable and familiar With this new way of working and litigating. Eileen, you have significant experience in the area of change management and developing and leading business change programmes. I'm particularly interested in your perspective here. What was the reaction generally to this move to remote hearings?
3: So I think you're absolutely right, Sinead. The tech piece is often the easy bit in any of these projects. Managing people through change is oftentimes much, much more challenging. And from a change perspective, the remove to remote hearings has all the hallmarks of a classic change curve. At the beginning, it was definitely overwhelming for people. People were wondering, could this be successful? Oftentimes, people's early experience was less than perfect. For example, at some of the early mocks, there were challenges maybe where there was significant noise in the background, or people were talking over one another, or people dropped off the calls. People just needed time to adjust. People needed time to become adept at using the new available tools. And they quickly learned that very often simple things make a very big difference, like protocols reminding everyone to mute if they're not speaking, or, you know, if your council of thinking about your background when you're in camera, or thinking about the placement of your camera, or something that happened recently was ensuring your window is shut so that a loud cackle of Dublin seagulls do not disturb the, the hearing. Or putting a Do Not Disturb sign outside your home office so the kids don't burst in. But, you know, change is always really hard for people. At the beginning, change tends to frustrate people and they do find it very hard to accept. And in a classic change curve, that's called the Valley of Despair. And then people become more used to the new circumstances. They become more comfortable with the new way of doing things. And they become more skilled at operating in this world and they begin to accept and embrace that change and even see some goodness in it. And they emerge out of that valley. And I think this is precisely what has occurred with the remote hearings and all the various stakeholders. You know, as time went by, the actors in the hearings, they became more comfortable and they realised that court business could be accomplished in this strange new world. That the objective of any hearing could be achieved and the business of justice could continue. So very much a classic change journey.
0: Very good tips there, Eileen, on keeping the seagulls and the kids out of remote hearings. Um, shut the windows and shut the doors, I think is uh, the message. And a very interesting perspective generally. Gillian, how open were the judges to this new way of working? Do you have any sense of this?
1: Very open, Sinead. Um, the remote hearing initiative was essentially led by the Chief Justice, Mr. Justice Frank Clark who in the past has made no secret of his desire to expand the use of technology in the courts as part of a general reform of the court system. And this is is not a recent development. Um, As we're going back to 2017, Mr. Justice Clark oversaw the first live televised broadcast of the the Supreme Court at that time. There were, of course, a number of other judges who were also instrumental in the remote hearings initiative and were involved in the various mock hearings uh, with others attending As observers and I think really it is fair to say that generally speaking the judges have been eager to adapt and to do whatever it's necessary to move cases along. The introduction of remote hearings was certainly a change for the judiciary and as it was for all of us as practitioners but they have certainly embraced the change and I think that is self-evident when you consider the statistics. And in fact, the CEO of the court service, Angela Denning, reported only last week that the use of remote courts and video technology has allowed both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court to remain up to date with many proceedings over the last number of months. Um, So that's very encouraging. And I suppose it really affirms both the judiciary's and the court service's dedication to continuing the business of the courts by whatever means possible.
0: Absolutely. And that's very encouraging to hear. And the court service also had and continues to have a huge role to play in all of this. And I think the Chief Justice at the recent launch of the 2019 Court Service Annual Report remarked that the thinking, planning and actions of the court service had developed five years over five months Eileen, you have liaised closely with the court service on this. How well do you think they have responded to and managed the
3: change? You know, I think the Irish court service has done extremely well in what were very difficult circumstances no one had experienced to draw upon, no one had lived through a pandemic, and there was a large amount of unknowns, and they responded so quickly, you know, immediately beginning to explore options and how really to keep the show on the road. And You know, this was a time where they didn't have the luxury of running a typical project where you would engage with stakeholders, where you'd spend a lot of time thinking about and documenting detailed requirements, where you'd spend a lot of time analysing options. But because of the pressures of time and the need for speed, the court service needed to be really creative, adapting really quickly what they already had in place, just to get a platform up and running. And you know, they had to deal with a lot of constraints also, often ones we don't think about you know not every courtroom had wi-fi try running a remote hearing without connectivity and there's a lot of operational things the court service needed to worry about that maybe a law firm or council can just ignore you know there's a large body of courtroom staff have to be trained they need to think about security on the platforms we don't Um, how do they ensure the right people were in the right place at the right time the right remote hearing room they may seem like very simple things but when they're done right nobody notices But when they go wrong everyone's frustrated and everyone's annoyed you know and despite all the challenges a really large volume of remote hearings have occurred and there are plans in place to expand all the time to add additional tech courtrooms in the four courts complex to improve the underlying wi-fi infrastructure to improve the underlying platforms. So certainly an extremely effective response. Um, And I think this is really just the beginning of an evolution of how we'll see the business of the courtroom adapt and change going forward.
0: Very challenging circumstances indeed. And it seems like a very effective response. Moving on, Eileen, to the technology side of things. Richard mentioned PECSIP earlier and I understand that's the IT system the court service is currently using for remote hearings. Can you tell us a bit more about the technology and maybe how we
3: might see it evolve? You know one of the things that occurred in the crisis was people needed to adapt what they had and use infrastructure they already had in place. It was a case of needs must with necessity being the mother of invention. And thus far in the journey, here in Ireland, and it's no different across the globe, we've been leveraging tech that was not designed specifically for the use case or typical processes of a courtroom hearing. It wasn't modelled for the interactions that occur in a courtroom setting. People have been really creative, making solutions like here in Ireland or Zoom or Microsoft Teams work in court hearing scenarios. Counsel and lawyers have adapted and began using chat apps like WhatsApp to facilitate communications between themselves. We quickly adapted and came up with standards and protocols to ensure that digital court books worked effectively. But because we are unlikely we will ever go back entirely to the way it was before, COVID, and because there were some very big advantages and benefits to doing some things differently, what I would expect to see is the emergence of solutions that are designed specifically to cater for a typical courtroom scenario. And they will be feature-rich and provide and integrate all the key needs of all the stakeholders into a single intuitive platform. When you begin to integrate all of these features in a single platform, it makes for a very rich user experience and it can be very powerful. Features like document repository and the communication channels, you know, the ability to digitally display an exhibit in a safe manner, or the controls you need to manage a hearing, like the ability to a witness all in one place. It would be a very rich experience for people. And I think that's what we're going to see very, very soon actually. We have been working with the court service on the working group and with the judiciary and the professions. And we've recently ran some mock hearings using a solution that has been designed with the courtroom in mind. During the mock, it featured a witness cross-examination. And while you might never fully replace a live in-person hearing, it was really very effective. And being on a feature-rich platform that was modelled for a courtroom process, it did make a very big difference.
0: Richard and Gillian, picking up on a point Eileen alluded to there, it's very difficult to fully replace or replicate a live in-person hearing. What are your thoughts on this? Are remote hearings an effective substitute for face-to-face hearings in the long term? Or are they really just a stopgap measure to get us over this pandemic?
2: Yeah, thanks, Sinead. That's a very good question. And I mean, while remote hearings may not be an effective substitute in every case, they are definitely more than just a stopgap measure. And I think we can safely assume at this stage that remote hearings are here to stay. Our experience over the last number of months has shown that remote hearings in the court service PECSUB system are definitely an effective way to deal with certain types of court applications and particularly cases that can be dealt with, as they say, on the papers and which mainly concentrate around oral submissions by counsel. Um, and indeed, I mean, the volume of cases itself is growing significantly. And since, uh, you know, late March, there have been some 800 instances of remote hearings across all court divisions and the court to state. Um, and that's as reported by the CEO of the court service in the past week. Um, now, admittedly, they are not an effective substitute in every case, at least not yet. Um, and certainly, you know, we we spoke about it a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, the, the the key type of case that uh, hasn't to date really been cracked in terms of remote hearings are witness actions, and uh, they can present certain difficulty. Also, cases involving uh, lay litigants or parties who are not uh, legally represented. But of course, the counterpoint to that is that access to technology also does increase access to justice and makes it uh, more widespread and easier for people uh, to, 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 to access uh, the courts via remote hearings. Now, I do think when we look back on this in 12 months' time, the court service will, however, be viewed as having been very prescient in the way that they've re- approached the remote hearing initiative and certainly the recent move to facilitate other technologies which can better cater for witness actions is a sea change which should hopefully be in place and available for use in late September, maybe early October of this year. And hopefully will address particular concerns, including the quality of the biofeedback from the parties participating remotely in a witness action. And I think in fairness, the work of the the, the various stakeholder groups uh, across the legal industry has to be commended in getting uh, that particular issue to this point. Um, um, So I do echo Eileen's comments earlier uh, on commending that work. Uh, It has certainly been an expedited journey that has been traveled in the last five months.
1: Yeah, and I suppose just to jump in there Sinead, I agree entirely with Richard. Uh, On witness trials, it is recognized that the more preferable forum for cross-examination of a witness is a physical court setting. But having said that, certain video conferencing platforms that we have seen over the last number of months do allow for a very effective witness cross-examination. And I suppose while we haven't yet uh, had witness witness hearings being conducted in practice, they are in the pipeline uh, over the next few months. Um, And we have been involved in, in a number of mock trials involving witness evidence, and they really have been very effective. And I think to your point on remote hearings generally, in light of the significant work that the court service has put in over the last number of months, um, which, uh, as you also mentioned, the Chief Justice recently described as the implementation of five years of change, thinking, planning and actions in the space of five months, and I think that's quite aptly put, uh, really means that, you know, remote or virtual hearings are certainly more, certainly more than a stopgap measure, uh, and we do expect them to form part of a sustainable plan for the future of the court system and hopefully a modernised version of the court system. And what about
0: access to remote hearings? Pre-COVID, courtrooms were generally open to members of the public, and if you were so inclined, you could, in general, go into any courtroom and quietly observe. Now, I appreciate that with physical distancing and all of that, this is no longer possible in a physical setting for now at least But what about a remote hearing? Can anyone log in and watch? And what about members of the media and reporters?
1: So, at the moment, Sinead, uh, login access to remote hearings is limited to those involved at the hearing. Having said that, all remote hearings will also be aired in a physical courtroom in which the registrar um, uh, over the case will also be present. So, subject to complying with physical distancing guidelines, Uh, members of the public and reporters can attend that physical courtroom to listen in or to monitor the proceedings. So that's the current position. Um, I wouldn't rule out the possibility, however, uh, that proceedings will be live streamed in the future. Part of the Chief Justice's reform initiative over the past two years or so um, has in fact seen the live broadcasting uh, of the delivery of a number of Supreme Court judgments. And I believe this has happened twelve times or so since twenty seventeen. Live streaming is also something that we've seen been seen happening in the English courts for some time. So, I suppose as I say, while it's not yet being considered in Ireland, it may be something that will transpire down the line. Live streaming
0: of court hearings would certainly be an interesting development. All right. Now, before we look to the future. Gillian, maybe you could bring us up to date to where things are at now. We've mentioned that remote hearings were piloted back in April. What has the uptake been like since then?
1: Yes, I mean, Ginead, things have certainly moved on since April. Richard mentioned earlier that 800 remote hearings have since t- uh, sorry have taken place since lockdown. Uh, and as I also mentioned, the, the CEO of the court service has indicated that the introduction of remote hearings has effectively allowed the court service to keep entirely up to date with appeals in the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court. So, I mean, this is a huge feat. Um, Effectively, since lockdown, with one exception, the Supreme Court has dealt with all of its appeals remotely. The Supreme Court has always, or sorry, the Court of Appeal has also been quite active in dealing with its appeals remotely, with three virtual courts running daily, dealing with both civil and criminal appeals. And at the high court level, in particular the commercial court what we're seeing is that the weekly call over of cases listed for hearing is now being done remotely as our applications for entry to the commercial list and just last week the president of the high court Ms justice irvine published a statement in which she indicated that all high court proceedings and applications that can justly be determined without oral evidence, evidence will be heard remotely so i think we can expect to see a much greater surge in high court work being done on a remote basis from September or October onwards.
0: Okay and then with all these remote hearings what is happening in a physical courtroom? At the start of our discussion Gillian you described a courtroom pre-Covid but how different does that courtroom look today?
1: Really very different uh, there's no longer the same hustle and bustle, and it's in, uh, really a very different atmosphere. Um, I suppose in line with govern- government advice, the courtrooms can now only accommodate very limited numbers of people. And this means that access to the courts will, like in practice, be limited to the lawyers in the case, perhaps one or two litigants, and the occasional court reporter. And the level of access will depend on the size of each courtroom and its prescribed maximum occupancy. But it's no longer the case of everyone entering court and waiting for the case to be called. You know, parties will now be given time slots, typically possibly a 15 minute time slot, and they will have to wait outside until it's their turn to be called. Once inside the courtroom itself, parties must maintain physical distancing, which is, of course, a feature of all of our lives now. And, you know, that applies equally in a courtroom setting as it does in any other environment. And it must be strictly observed. You'll probably also see around the four courts lawyers and court staff wearing face coverings. It's not in fact mandatory, but it is strongly advised. Uh, and what we're seeing is that the vast majority of those present in court are adhering to the recommendations in that respect. And I suppose what all of this means in practice really is that because of the greatly reduced numbers of people who can be safely accommodated in courtrooms, only a limited number of rooms are available for the hearing of cases. And that in turn means that various actions, such as multi-party actions, at least, will certainly pose a significant challenge. And I suppose that really, again, is then where the remote hearings comes in to bridge that gap.
0: So overall, a very much changed environment and experience and atmosphere. Before we finish, I want to get each of your thoughts on the future and where things are likely to go from here. Eileen, you have already given us some thoughts on how the technology might evolve. Do you have any other thoughts on what the future of our courts and litigation might look like?
3: Yeah, you know, typically what happens when big tech change enters our lives, we overestimate the immediate impact because it's in the here and now. And we tend to underestimate the longer term and enduring impact. Right now, we're in the phase of, learning to live alongside COVID. It's not going away anytime soon it seems and equally the world cannot stop indefinitely. None of us have a crystal ball but it does seem likely we will live with a hybrid world of a mix of in-person and remote hearings for quite some time. So you roll forward a year and everyone has adapted. They've come through the change curve, most people have become adept at navigating this new world, So going back to a pre-COVID scenario is a change again, and a change I think we'll resist. It will cause us to ask questions. Do I really want to revert back to having huge binders of paper documents to haul around? They're heavy and bad for my back. Do I want to pay for the cost for producing or distributing them? Our clients certainly won't want that. Does it make sense that our legal team spend non-productive time traveling back and forth to a physical location for what might be a 10-minute hearing can just as effectively be conducted digitally? Does it make sense that our prison service and police service spend significant time in transporting remand prisoners for every court appearance? Of course, there are some times where it is absolutely essential, but perhaps not every time. I think the COVID experience is going to cause us to examine all those questions and it will reframe the future. Absolutely,
1: and Gillian, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Sinead. I think Eileen makes some very valid points. Um, I, suppose I also think that for lawyers, there will be a renewed emphasis on the importance of court papers and really making sure they're in order well in advance of hearing, as there won't be the same opportunity to hand papers into court last minute as we've seen in the past. We're likely also to see some changes as to how hearings, both physical and remote, are case managed and run. Uh, And I expect that there may be more of an onus or an expectation on judges to have read the papers in advance of hearing, but also an expectation on counsel to work within strict time limitations uh, when delivering their oral submissions, really, I suppose, to ensure that cases don't extend beyond beyond allotted time slots. Um, And I suppose case management is one of those areas which really is an area of focus for the courts and trial judges. And we know this from recent pronounces from the Supreme Court. Um, And again, I suppose the pandemic really might accelerate some of those changes that perhaps have been in the pipeline for some time, um, but are really now uh, coming to the fore. And Richard, I remember you
0: saying to me on pretty much the first day of lockdown that the next few months would change the face of litigation forever And I think that has certainly proved to be true. To finish, do you have any other predictions for us?
2: Yeah, probably, uh, Sinead. You know me well enough at this stage. Um, This is something that Gillian, Eileen and myself have debated a lot in the past four months. Uh, And I think the way to look at this is to see how all of the key elements and stakeholders are aligning. Uh, first, we're unbelievably lucky with the leaders that we have in the court service and the judiciary, including our Chief Justice and President of the High Court, as they are very open to technological change, including remote hearings. Secondly, the wider legal industry is behind the initiative in Ireland. And, and third, in the long term, as the COVID crisis hopefully abates, I believe there will be a recognition that remote hearings have a role to play, not least as part of an initiative for reform of the justice system, but also you know, for work-life balance and all of the issues that we're seeing under debate as we, you know, now set and enter the the now or new normals. Uh, and in turn, I think this will result in remote hearings becoming more immersed into everyday practice um, as part of remote and agile ways of work. I suppose, where will we ultimately end up and do I have a prediction about that? Well, I think we've, we've made an excellent start to the journey, but now is not the time to become complacent So the overall remote hearings initiative, I think, needs to maintain the momentum that it has had since uh, late March. Um, And I suppose one final thought about this is that when you stand back, you know, in, in the global sense and where is Ireland? Well, I think we have an excellent opportunity to be one of the leading common law jurisdictions that can facilitate remote hearings and make this perhaps a central part of an overhaul of the technological change Uh, in justice and justice reform generally Uh, and I also think that this is aligned with our international reputation for technological innovation. Let's end with a final thought like this, wouldn't it be great for our justice system to be a global innovation leader in this space?
0: Thanks Richard for that. I think it's clear from what the three of you have said that a lot of progress has been made in the last number of months thanks to the collaborative effort of practitioners, judges and the court service. And it certainly seems, as you said, that there are great opportunities here for Ireland to become an effective world leading centre for dispute resolution. So let's hope we can continue the progress and keep up the momentum. And watch this space as they say. Richard, Gillian and Eileen, thank you for joining me and for sharing your very interesting thoughts and insights. I really enjoyed our discussion and I hope our listeners did too. If you have any questions, please do get in touch. We'd be very happy to talk to you. Thank you for listening and goodbye.